Do you have an idea for a podcast, but you don't know where to start? Maybe you're overwhelmed by all the tech or you're convinced nobody will actually listen to you. Well, I'm Shauna Game. After nine and a half years as a professional podcaster, at this show, everyone's talking money. And 25 million downloads later, let me tell you the secret to a profitable podcast. It is building a solid foundation, your podcast roadmap before you launch. That's why I created the Podcaster Class, a fast-paced group cohort podcasting for profit eight-week style NBA program. The Podcaster Class is immersive, comprehensive, and insanely motivational. If you want to create a podcast, DIYing a launch is just not the way to go. In the Podcaster Class, you'll get the tools, tips, and strategies to create a podcast that resonates with listeners and one you can be proud of. Get this. 90% of podcasters never make it to episode three. That's 2.8 million podcasters who just quit. So to be a top podcaster, you only need to publish 21 episodes, but you got to make them good. So in the podcaster class, I'm taking the mystery out of how to create, launch, and profit from your podcast so you can create a top 1% podcast just like this one. The May cohort is now open for enrollment. Classes start May 22nd. There are only 15 spots open. You are going to learn podcasting with me and 14 other amazing people. You can learn all the details at thepodcasterclass.com. Use code podcast when you sign up for $100 off. That's thepodcasterclass.com. You know, I'm a big fan of enjoying life while still being smart financially. That's why I love ButcherBox. I can get a variety of high quality meat, seafood, chicken, and pork at an amazing value all with exclusive member deals delivered to my door with free shipping always. One thing I just never wanted to cut out of my spending plan is eating good food. And with ButcherBox, I don't have to, and neither do you. Where else can you get free protein for a whole year? Yes, you heard that right. One of my favorite go-to dinners is a salmon bowl. I'm not even a huge salmon lover, but ButcherBox's wild-caught salmon is Oh, so good. I make a nice little marinade, saute some veggies, cook the salmon, and throw in some weiss. And it is an amazing dinner. If you want to take less trips to the grocery store and always have prepared meat in the freezer for a lot less money, you need ButcherBox in your life. Sign up at butcherbox.com etm and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. You can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash etm. Happy holidays. This is Everyone's Talking Money. I am Shauna Game, and welcome to day four of 12 Days of Holiday Episodes. This episode, I don't know if it was one of your favorites, but it was certainly one of mine because I think it's so important to talk about this topic. I don't know if you know, but there is around $195 billion of medical debt outstanding, and it is one of the leading causes of bankruptcy. So I don't want to bring the mood down this holiday season, but If you or someone you love has medical debt, this is a great, great episode with Allison Sesso from RIP Medical Debt. She's talking about five tips to crush that medical debt. All right, let's start talking. 
the mental health anguish is really significant for individuals. Um, I just want everyone to know that it is not your fault. The system is designed to actually create medical debt, unfortunately. Um, I don't know that that was like, it's not like an intentional thing that like, it's like, well, let's create a system that creates medical debt, but it is a feature. I mean, it really is a feature today of our, of our system. Welcome to Everyone's Talking Money Podcast. I'm your host, Shauna Game. There's no judgment, no dumb questions, just smart conversations about you and your money. So come on in and grab a seat. Everyone is welcome here. Did you know there is $195 billion of medical debt outstanding? And in fact, medical debt is the leading cause of bankruptcy here in the U.S. If you've been to a hospital or even a doctor recently, you know, even with insurance, getting health care in this country means you often have to pay out of pocket in a big way. That is frustrating, my friend. My dear friend, Shannon, she died of cancer a few years ago, and she was staring down piles of bills all while trying to fight a terminal disease. And that was with good health insurance. That is unacceptable to me. The truth is, you shouldn't be put in financial ruin for walking through the door to a hospital or a medical provider. We are all human beings, last time I checked, and we all deserve to have affordable and accessible medical care. That is end of story. However, as our guest Allison Sesso, executive director of RIP Medical Debt, says, the system was not set up for success in the first place. Allison joins us on a riveting episode uncovering the who, what, when, where, and why behind medical debt and offers some great advice if you're currently in medical debt. Some of her advice includes knowing hospital financial assistance programs, never putting medical debt on a credit card, and making sure you know the loopholes for your insurance plan. Oh yes, we dig deep in this episode to give you an education and actionable tips. Let's start talking. Allison, I am so, so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, I so much appreciate being here. I love talking about medical debt. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. That is what this episode is all about. And I was doing a lot of research before our conversation. And one really scary stat that stood out to me was that medical debt is the leading cause of bankruptcy in the U.S. I mean, I know that, but still, every time I read that, it just... It's really shocking to me. So I, I've been looking forward to this conversation for, for quite some time. And I know this is a big old can of worms that we're about to open up here in so many different areas. But, you know, why do we have so much medical debt in this country? Why is this happening? Well, I mean, the bottom line is that we have a uh, for-profit healthcare financing system that incentivizes uh, a, a Profit making, and because of that, I think at the end of the day, we end up with um, more and more costs being pushed down to the consumer, and we need to fix that. I mean, what I really like to focus on is what happens at the end of the day, which is that the expectation that the individual pay a lot of money out of pocket really needs to be fixed. Well, when we're thinking about our uh, system of healthcare, that we need to be really revisiting how much we expect people to pay out of their own pocket. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're going to hopefully dive deep into that. Before we do, though, 
I'm a big fan of talking about like the mental health repercussions that debt really has on us when we're in debt. I know that because money is the number one cause of stress and and debt usually is somewhere in that equation. So, you know, I would imagine that with medical debt, there's there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of shame that comes along with that. So anyone listening right now where that's really resonating with them, do you have any maybe like a calming words of wisdom of those listening right now that are in medical debt? Like, how can they maybe reframe their mindset around, you know, being in this place? Yeah, I am so glad that you brought that up because I think it's one of the elements that is often underappreciated about the impact of medical debt. And it's like the number one thing that we hear from people who we've assisted and abolished their debt for. Um, The mental health anguish is really significant for individuals. Um, I just want everyone to know that it is not your fault. The system is designed to actually create medical debt, unfortunately. Um, I don't know that that was like, it's not like an intentional thing that like, it's like, let's create a system that creates medical debt, but it is a feature. I mean, it really is a feature today of our, of our system. Um, you're, you're likely to not be able to afford insurance that, uh, covers your full costs. There's so many loopholes within the system that you could easily fall through someone not being in network, not being in the right state when you need, you know, you have an emergency and not having coverage. It's really difficult to avoid medical care and uh, medical debt. Um, in fact, fact, there was a recent statistic that really is scary. That is the number one reason why people, uh, the number one cause of medical debt is not not being insured like people might think, but it's getting sick. So, so that is, you know, so just think about that and, and think this is not your fault. You should not be ashamed of it. In fact, I'm really trying to encourage people to talk about the issue of medical debt. If you look at what's happened with student debt, that is what really got us some momentum behind this people talking about the issue and being honest about the impact on them. And so we need to do the same thing for medical debt. Talk about it, recognize that it's not your fault. And I think that that will help with the mental anguish that you're feeling. Yeah, because there's just like you brought up student loan debt, there's so much shame that comes along with debt. And we've created this society that believes that unless you're debt free, like you're doing something wrong, or you're you're not perfect, whatever that means. And so I you know, that's one of the things that I I love to do with the show is have these conversations about these topics that maybe we might feel really scared to talk about because we feel like we might be judged or uh, ridiculed for for being in debt, especially medical debt. But when when you're talking about, uh, you know, that the system is kind of set up against you, I mean, hopefully that's really bringing some relief to somebody listening. And it prompts my next question, you know, what? why are the costs of these medical procedures, why are they rising so rapidly? Is there anything that can be done about this? I mean, I think that there's a lot of things that could be done. Um so yes, absolutely. The, the, the costs are rising on, on procedures, but it's not just that the costs are rising. It's that the expectation of how much the individual pays for that cost and contributes to the overall cost is shifting. So it's not, you know, I think it's a misunderstanding that it's just the, the, the cost of the procedures are rising. It's also, 
that the expectation that the individual pays more out of pocket and pays more themselves is rising. And so that is really shifting. What's happening is that insurance is uh, covering less and less of the costs and those costs are being shifted to the individual. So number one, premiums are rising. So it's hard to get good insurance, right? So you because you have to pay a high premium. And then you've got very high deductibles that don't align with people's means. So you might have a high deductible plan that's, you know, expects $3,000 out of pocket, but you don't have $3,000. I mean, we know that a, a huge percentage of Americans don't even have uh, $400 in savings, right? So, I mean, if that, if you add those things together, you're going to end up with a lot of people with medical debt that are simply based out of the deductible problem or the, you know, and being able to get a plan that doesn't have a high deductible is unaffordable to begin with. And so, you know, the problem lies in a lot of elements of it. Yes, costs for procedures may be rising to some degree, but a lot of it is that the insurance companies are no longer paying as much of the costs and increasingly the individual is expected to pay out of their own pocket. Why is that happening? Why, why are the insurance companies paying less and less? Well, it goes back to my original, you know, p- my original statement, which is that we have a, an incentives, incentive, a system that incentivizes profit. I mean, the insurance companies are for-profit entities that have to make a, make their bottom line meet, right? They have to like actually make money. Right. Um, and that, that's what they're driven by. Um, so what they're finding is that, so, so hospitals have to have people come in the door. Um, that have good insurance. And when they don't, they go to after the individual to, to pay more out of pocket. It's really this big fight between who pays for the cost between the hospitals and the insurance companies that's going on. And increasingly, they're leveraging the patient in the middle of it. Um, and I mean, I'll, I'll say hospitals don't really want the um, individual to have to collect from the individual, but they're in that position because the insurance companies um, aren't paying as much and they're not paying as much because they're looking at their bottom lines and they're not making as much money. So, so hospitals end up increasing the price of things so that insurance companies will pay more. There's less and less people that are, have good insurance. So it's just like this constant fight and, and battle about who's paying the costs. Um, and the, both the hospital and the, insurance company are looking at their bottom lines and increasingly the people coming in the door have have uh, less viable coverage that covers as much of the cost. And so the system is really just a back and forth between these two entities that are both fighting about their bottom lines. And it's the patient that gets caught in the middle. Right. So we're like in this tug of war. Exactly. <laughs> and we're in the middle, right? Like we're the patient in the mud pit. Right. Just kind of stuck in the middle. Exactly. Oh, it's so it's so infuriating. Wow. Well, I want to talk about the possibility of paying out of pocket versus going through insurance. So there was an article I read in uh, NPR. It talked about this woman who was charged somewhere around like $18,000 for a biopsy. That was before insurance. And then she ended up paying about $5,000 once everything had been processed through her insurance. But she then learned that she could actually negotiate a cash price and it would be less than if she actually used her insurance. So you're the expert. Like, wh- what are the secrets we need to know about negotiating medical debt either before or after the procedure? 
Yeah. So I, before I, I give some tips, if you will, I just want to say that I reject the idea overall. I just, I need to say this. Like I reject the idea that we have to be consumers when we're talking about our medical care. And that is what our system is set up us up to do, that we have to negotiate ahead of time after the fact. This is a time when you're sick. This is a time when you're ill. This is a, you're, you are down and out and you've got to pick up the phone and navigate this complex system that you're trying to fight your way through the insurance company what the hospital is saying. It's really a unfair position to put people in. So I'll say that first and foremost. However, that is unfortunately the reality that we are in. Um, and I just want to also add that there are racial dynamics to that too. Um, we, yes. we know that um, Black people in particular, but people of color in general, when they are set up for a negotiation, be it buying a car or trying to get a mortgage, et cetera, et cetera. If they're in a negotiation position, they do worse um, in terms of the outcomes than white people. And so when we're setting up our system to, to force people to negotiate, that inherently will have um, poor outcomes for black people. And we see that in the numbers of medical debt, which disproportionately impacts people of color. So there's that. But if people think that they need, and I think they do need to operate in reality of where we are today, which is, you know, a negotiation position, I would say a couple of things. First of all, for non-emergency situations, emergencies are really hard to figure out in advance. You know, you can't really plan in advance that much. <laughs> um, we wish, right? But <laughs> I mean, I guess you could sort of say like, you can like know, basically know the hospitals that, that you could end up going to. And in an emergency, make sure you tell your family, like, don't go to this hospital, go to that hospital. And what I, what I say about that is know the hospital's financial assistance policy so know which, you know, how generous they are, um, what kind of discounts they offer. All hospitals that are nonprofits, which is the majority of them, have to have some kind of financial assistance policy. And they sh it's not always easy to find, but it is information that should be on their website and is legally required to be on their website. So, and you can call them and try to get more details in advance. You could do that before an emergency. You can do that before a planned procedure. So have a sense of what the financial assistance policies are and how you might qualify. Also think about your insurance. Make sure you understand your insurance. Make sure that you know what the loopholes are, who's in network, who's out of network. Um, so those are the kinds of things that you can do to protect yourself in advance. Um, once you end up with a bill, I mean, I think you can go to the insurance company and, you know, articulate your concerns as well as to the hospital um, and or other, you know, healthcare provider. So there's, it's always worth your time to push back and to make sure you understand the bills, understand what your insurance changes. These are big bureaucracies, the hospitals um, and even the insurance companies. And so, you know, having to respond to an individual, it, it's time consuming. It can be very frustrating, but it often does I literally pay off because you can reduce your costs overall and, um, you know, get to a more reasonable um, out-of-pocket level. I know a couple of years ago, my husband had some surgery and it was, I believe, a couple of thousands of, a couple thousand dollars. And although we could have paid it all in full, being a money person, I like to spread things out in payments. And so, you know, I called the hospital and they said, oh yeah, you know, we have these various uh, payment methods. We could spend it spread over 12 months or 24 months. I don't remember all of the options, but it makes me wonder like what percentage of people when they get those, those big medical bills, 
are just kind of stuck in that place of fear and don't even know that there are some options. Like they just see that amount of money and either they think, oh, I've got to put that on my credit card or, you know, I have to use all of my all of my savings. Uh, you know, I would imagine that there's a, there's a large population of people that just don't even know that there are actually options. I agree with that because it's overwhelming, right? And and probably this is in the face of other debts that you have, you know, on top of this. Um, I would say, first of all, never, ever, 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 ever put it on a credit card. Do not do that. That is a very bad, poor financial decision because it will only increase the cost and it's not a good option. Most hospitals do offer either low or no in, no in uh, interest rate interest loans, rate. right, at, at some rate. So that, what you did, I think, makes sense. But you also have to make sure you're careful you're not signing yourself up for like a lifetime of some additional monthly payment that's going to saddle you and in, in what you can do economically going forward, because I see that often happens. There's a lot of pressure put on by collection agencies to individuals to just sign up and pay something month after month after month. And, it, and what we're finding is some people pay you know, a lot and they're at great sacrifice. I mean, at, you know, some you people argue, okay, people aren't able to pay for food because they're paying for medical debt. But also what about not being able to like send your kid off to a karate lesson or dance lessons or things like that? Those are to me, real sacrifices as well. Um, so be careful about what you're sort of signing up for. Um, always try to lower the amount before you even sign up for a plan. Um, I would think that you do that. Like, so you can, you can tell them like, this is the amount that you're showing for the plan, but I can only pay X amount. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, to me, what I've understood is that depends on the hospital, depends on the circumstance. It's always worth a try. Honestly, it is always worth a try to see if you can get the amount down, what will be accepted. And what about once it has gone to collections? Like we haven't been able to pay this debt what options do we have then? Yeah, well, so first of all, it depends what collections means. I think that there's a, a misunderstanding. Sometimes the do- the debt is actually sold to a third party, in which case it's out of the hospital's hands. They don't own it anymore. It's important to know and to ask whoever's calling you, who owns the debt? Like, where is it? Act- is it still belong to the hospital? Are you a third party? Et cetera, et cetera. Um, also, you should know the rules and regulations for where you live. Depending on where you live, what can be done and and what um, a collections agency is allowed to do differs. Um, so you should be sort of cognizant of that. Um, there, and there have, have been some changes recently um, that were made by the, the three major uh, credit agencies that you should make sure that you're aware of. Number one, yes. um, starting July 1st, paid medical collections will no longer be on consumer reports. So if you paid off your medical debt, it shouldn't show up on your um, on your report. Um you also have a year to settle any medical bills um, bef- that uh, in term before they can go on your credit report. Um, and this is a change from previously it was six months. And then beginning sometime next year in 2023, medical debt that's less than $500 will not be included on your credit report. Now, I know most people are more concerned about bigger debts, but know that if it's under four or $500, honestly, I'm not even sure you really have to call the collection agency back in the same way. I'm going to be real with you. Identity theft is on the rise and you do not want to wake up one morning and discover that your bank account has been emptied or you're overdue on credit cards you never even applied for. We talk about this often on the podcast, but you don't realize how much of your information 
is available to scammers on the internet and how susceptible you and your family are to identity theft and fraud. I know it's scary, but now you can get your data removed with Delete Me. That's why I personally choose Delete Me. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. I just started using Delete Me and I got my regular personalized privacy report. <laughs> I was shocked what they found and removed. It was pages of information about me that I did not want online. Here's how it works. You sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. I cannot tell you how relieved I felt to have Delete Me. And you know, it's also a great service for your parents or grandparents to help protect them from identity theft. Delete Me is not just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you do not want on the internet. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special price for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com etm and use promo code etm at checkout. The only way you get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com etm and enter code etm at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E.com slash etm. Go to joindeleteme.com etm and use code etm for 20% off. The weather is getting warmer. I'm so excited, and it is time to say goodbye to all those jackets and sweaters and hello to the shorts and t-shirts. I wanted to update my summer workout wardrobe for the long haul without, you know, spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince, and I am in love. Quince is your go-to place from everything from premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless... 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. The best part of all, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes those savings on to you. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I love that. Okay, I bought the dreamiest pair of workout leggings and a bright pink workout top to match. Honestly, ladies, I gotta tell you, these leggings you need. The price cannot be beat and I feel like a million bucks wearing this cozy workout friendly outfit. I've worn it for like five days straight. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com etm for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ETM to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash ETM. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I was paying for vacations all wrong. <laughs> I was missing out on miles. I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? I don't know, maybe that fancy hotel upgrade that you have always been dreaming about. Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. 
Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Wow. Well, those, those sound like some really important changes. I mean, especially giving people a year to, to figure out the, the debt. Um, are, are you seeing more medical debt since COVID? Has that increased significantly, the amount of medical debt that people have? Yeah. So it's interesting. I feel like I'm always asked this question. And, and the answer is that it's complicated <laughs> um, because what happened during COVID is a lot of people stopped getting other medical care that was unrelated to COVID, right? So like people, like procedures went down, elective procedures, and people just avoided going to the, do- you know, people avoid leaving their house for a while, let alone going to the hospitals. Um, where COVID was really being dealt with. Um, so because of that, I think we kind of saw an evening out. Plus, on top of that, there were some very special um, funding streams provided by the federal government to support COVID. And insurance companies also did made some, some important changes to support COVID-specific um, care. So those things, which just shows you that when there's, you know, additional money, either from the insurance companies or from the fe- from the federal government, it does help uh, with the actual cost of care so that less gets uh, put on the individual. So it's a complicated story with COVID that I don't think we fully have unraveled. Uh, but I wouldn't say that you can necessarily conclude that the co- that costs went up overall of um, or uh, medical debt went up sure. overall. Fascinating. Uh now, I don't want to get into like a whole debate about socialized medicine here. That's a whole other episode. But there are a lot of countries like Canada around the world that seem to be, at least from the outside, maybe taking better care of their citizens when it comes to healthcare. And the U.S., it's always been lacking in how, uh, you know, who actually pays. Like we just talked about this tug of war of who is actually paying for for healthcare. So, you know, what about what about the government? Like what responsibility do they have? You know, who is responsible for fixing this medical debt problem? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I mean, I have to say it's, it's one a little bit above my pay grade. It's very like um, and, and it's one, of course, I, you know, I think about all the time and I and I, I get asked all the time. And I think, you know, this debate has been going on in the United States for a, for very long time. Um, you know, there was opportunities along the way to, uh, to go towards a more, you know, and I don't know if it's like socialized medicine or, or more, you know, government supported. There's different versions in, in other places that, you know, do sort of support, uh, employer based approaches or where the insurance is sort of uh, subsidized. But right, right. we have mm-hmm. decided in this country that we are, for now at least, that this is the system that we're, we've got. That we, you know, we have, it's employer based mostly that you get your insurance through. Um, but we've had to prop that up with, with government programs. I mean, let's not pretend like government isn't spending money on this. Government spending money in a variety of ways on our health and, um, healthcare costs. In fact, you know, Medicare, Medicaid are some of our biggest costs in, in state and local budgets. Um, and at the federal level as well. I mean, we've, we subsidize insurance rates at this point. That was what Obamacare did, um, which is gr- good in a lot of ways. And, and helps make sure that more people have insurance and are less um, likely to have massive, you know, medical bills and have importantly access to care. Um, but we also have, a, a, you know, poor people are covered by Medicaid. Um, we have uh, Medicare, which co- covers in part people who are 65 and older. Um, so there's a lot of federal money that is, you know, supporting the healthcare system in the United States. Um, and 
the outcomes aren't really that great. And that's something because I think what we're also not doing is we're not putting money into preventive measures like social services that help people keep people healthy. And uh, I think that that's really undermining our, our ultimate outcomes in terms of, of health outcomes. So we're spending a lot of money. We're not spending it well or efficiently. Ultimately, a fair amount of the money in healthcare is going f- to support profits, um, which don't really help support access or outcomes in terms of the healthcare. Yeah, I mean, we could go down like a whole slippery slope here. I mean, this is the stuff that I find fascinating. But, you know, if we start looking at like the food system in the United States and, um, you know, even when you go to the doctor, a lot of times, you know, maybe very medically necessarily so you're given a pill or a procedure, uh, but not maybe talked about how to better your health. You know, maybe I, I don't know. I'm kind of yeah, going on a rant no, here. I but you. But I'm thinking like, I mean, there's so many layers to this that uh, you're right. Like there isn't any onus on teaching people how to live better and to to just function better. Right. And so we end up what we end up doing is we have what we call sick care. We don't have health care, right? We have we we react to people being already pretty sick by the time they come in the door because people avoid going in the door because they know they'll be potentially in financial ruin if they walk through that door. I mean, it is crazy. We have people who refuse to go into ambulances when they're clearly hurt. We have people that sit outside of uh, ER rooms in their cars waiting to see if the pain that they're feeling will subside so they don't have to walk through those doors. You don't find that in other countries. That is a very unique uh, problem in the United States. Um, I would say, though, there are a couple of things that we can do right now within our system that would improve it, I think, dramatically. Again, keeping the patient at the center of this, which one of my colleagues talks about it like this, too. They're like, they're a patient when they walk in the door and they're like a consumer when they walk out the door or they're like, a, you know, Ooh, so yeah. it's like it's like all of a sudden like, oh, no, now you have to pay. And this is like a totally different shift. But we at RIP think about a couple of things. First of all, we think about before the person walks in the door, should they have good insurance? Like, do they have good insurance? And so we support getting, ensuring people have good insurance. And that has to do with government subsidies, which we are, you know, in support of, right? Making sure that people have good insurance. Then once they're in the door at the hospital, ensuring that the hospital has clear and robust financial assistance policies, which I mentioned earlier, that they are recognizing that low-income people that walk through their doors cannot pay the full expectation, even if they have insurance. So if they, you know, if they have a $2,000 deductible and they're at 200% of poverty, they're not going to be able to pay that $2,000 and the hospital needs to provide that charity care to that individual and not expect to collect that $2,000. And then lastly, if you do end up with medical debt, ensuring that what we do to, to collect that debt is humane, that we're not garnishing people's wages, that we're not taking away their homes and putting liens on their homes and their cars and really putting them in an economic bind um, just because they ended up with medical debt, which is, again, pretty inevitable in this country. Well, I want to talk about RIP medical debt and what you're doing. But before before we do that, I, I have to ask you, like what you're obviously so enthusiastic about this mm-hmm. and like so committed to helping people. Like, how did you how did you get into this field of, of medical debt? 
Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. Um, and thank you. I <laughs> I am passionate about this. I feel like I live and breathe this issue and I'm just so frustrated because I, you know, I think the United States could do so much better. It has so much potential. And I just feel like we're, we're, we've got this thing really, really wrong. Um, we're not getting a passing grade. That is for sure. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, so, uh, my background's actually in social services. Um, and I represented about 200 nonprofits that are operating in New York City for a while. Um, and I saw how they, you know, struggle to pick up the pieces of a lot of different economically, you know, broken systems. Um, and when I saw RIP Medical Debt was looking for an executive leader about two and a half years ago, actually just before the pandemic started, um, I jumped at the opportunity when I looked at the model because I understood that the issue of medical debt sits in, in this middle space between not just a broken healthcare financing system, but largely a broken economic system too. Um, and the brilliance of their um, solution, you know, working in social services, you see how much effort and work it is to help families and to provide uh, meaningful outcomes and be innovative. Um, the cost of what RIP does and the amount of relief we can provide in such an efficient, unique way was so appealing to me. And in the process of doing that work, I can have conversations like this that elevate the, the brokenness of the system. So I'm doing two things. I'm both helping people really rapidly one by one um, and, you know, just, just getting the debt out of their way while also saying, hey, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't have to have this job. I should have another job. <laughs> you know, I shouldn't be working on medical debt. There's a problem that we have collectively that we need to solve. Okay, friend, I want to know, what are your money goals this year? Are you saving to buy a house or maybe a wedding or a dream vacation to somewhere tropical? If that's you, please, please take me with you. Or maybe you want to just grow your emergency fund because let's be real, life is expensive. I want to make sure you reach your goals. So you need Monarch. That's why the Wall Street Journal named it the best app for growing your savings. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets, track progress towards your financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com etm. Here's what I love. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. You can change the layout of your dashboard. You can go between light and dark mode. You can create custom budgets and notifications. You can set up all of these automatic rules for your transactions and notifications and so much more. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving their product. Get this. They release updates every two weeks and they even allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. This my friend, is totally original. Plus, they will never sell your data to third party or show you ads. I think that's really important. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it is the top-rated personal finance app. And now, listeners of this show get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash etm. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash etm for your extended 30-day free trial. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. 
pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I love that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I, lo- I love your passion. And I think it's so cool when you have kind of two worlds that come together and like your previous experience, you know, really couples with this this mission that you're really that you're passionate about. And I, I know you're doing a lot of work at RIP Medical Debt. You've wiped out somewhere around $6.5 billion. We're actually maybe. at seven now. $7 billion. Okay. I mean, that that's a lot of money. And I know you're just getting started. So tell me more about, you know, what you're doing there to really help people get out of medical debt. Yeah, sure. So it's really a beautiful um, and unique model. Um, It's we're we're nationally focused. So we work across the country. Um, What we do is we pair donor dollars. So people donate to RIP. um, And, you know, people love donating to us because we have such an incredible return on investment in which if you give us $1, $1, it relieves $100 of medical debt. So if you give us $50, <laughs> um, you can get $5,000 of debt relieved. If you give us $500, you can get rid of $50,000 of medical debt. You know, So the numbers just really speak for themselves. Um, and the way we do that is because we mimic a for-profit debt buyer. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, some hospitals do sell their debt to for-profit debt buyers um, and there's a price that they pay. And that price is very low because likely the individuals who you're trying to get the money from that owe that debt don't have it. So they can only really collect on a small percentage of that portfolio that they buy. So the, the, for-profit debt buyer will buy the entire portfolio of bad debt that a hospital or other healthcare provider has at a very depressed price on the bet, essentially, that they will be able to recover some portion of that. And they have to be able to price it low enough that they're going to make a profit. So that, but again, because most of the people in that portfolio likely don't have the money, it's priced extremely low. And so our model takes advantage of the market, if you will, in that way. And so we're able to buy um, large portfolios of debt, but we don't need to make a return on an investment because our investment is in the patients and in providing debt relief. And so by using donated dollars, we buy those large portfolios and then we just send letters to all the people that are in that portfolio and say, we're a nonprofit. We bought your debt. You are free and clear of that debt. Hold on to this letter if anyone ever dares try to collect it from you. Wow. Okay. So, so how does somebody then qualify? So you cannot call us and ask us to relieve your debt. It does not work that way. It is source driven, meaning that we need to buy it and need, you have to be sort of by chance in, in a portfolio of debt that we get our hands on. And we're out there trying to get our hands on as many portfolios as possible. So we need healthcare providers to call us, not the patients. Um, so once, once we have our hands on, on that debt, um, you know, we, we obviously relieve it from every individual. Um, uh, 
yeah, I mean, I, I, I for, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought on that piece right there. That's okay. That's okay. You were, you were talking about like who qualifies. Oh, who so. qualifies? Sorry. So yes. who qualifies? So the people in order to qualify for our program, you have to be either 400% of poverty or below. Um, or you have to have the debt itself has to be 5% or more of your income. And so that's really how we qualify people. It's people who are facing financial hardship in the way that we define it at that 400% of poverty or below or the debt being 5% of their income or below. And so we, do an analysis of the file once we get it from the hospital and provided that you are uh, within those qualifications, you will get a letter. And that's usually the majority of the of the file. I'm just thinking if you are in that position where you have medical debt and suddenly you get a letter that says your debt has, I mean, the, my first thought would be like, no, this is not like this has to be fake, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then my second thought probably followed very closely up is just like, Oh my gosh, like how did I get so lucky? I mean, I'm I'm just imagining the stories you probably get from from people. Yeah, I have to say that is the best and most motivating part of this work is hearing back from people who are like, "Wait, what? Really? <laughs> um, I can't believe this." And sometimes, but you'd be surprised, the debt could be a few years old and there's still that sense of relief of the mental anguish being lifted and that somebody else without them asking went ahead and did something for them is really palpable. Um, we get stories from people who are, you know, mothers that had complications during childbirth that, you know, unexpected issues with either the baby and NICU costs. We get stories of people who are dealing with cancer and we get stories of people whose debt we relieved a thousand dollars and they just couldn't meet their deductible, but they felt overwhelmed and ashamed about it. Nonetheless, so we get all runs the gamut of the stories that we get from individuals, and it is absolutely the best part of this job. And I will tell you that we share those stories with our donors. Oftentimes, they're churches or corporations or individuals, and people love hearing those stories and knowing that they because of their donation made that difference in those people's lives. And so we feel like we're just a conduit to that. Another thing I wanted to ask you about as we're having this conversation, I, I recently had a friend who she got diagnosed with something and she needed a procedure and she couldn't afford it in the U.S. system. She had health insurance, but just couldn't afford it and actually went to the U.K. to have it done without insurance, of course. But she actually used crowdfunding to pay for her procedure. So that's just... That's just one example, but is, is crowdfunding, are you seeing this as a way that people are, uh, you know, raising money to try and deal with their medical debt? I think people are trying to raise money to deal with their medical debt. And I think the, I know that the majority are failing. So I, I appreciate, you know, and if you even the, the founder of GoFundMe will say, you know, I this was not uh, the intention, this, right? Yes. That's not why I created GoFundMe. It was supposed to fund like one-time projects and, you know, little things. And um, unfortunately, by far the majority of GoFundMe pages are um, related to medical care, um, medical needs. Um, and what's problematic about that, again, is, you know, people like your friend, which is great that she was able to do that, um, it depends on who your friends are, if they are people of means right, and, exactly. or not. Right. Yeah. So like that matters. And also like your story matters. Like you have to become like, it's like you're, 
you know, you're putting yourself out there and you're, if you're a good marketer, like if you're able to tell your story in a sob enough way, it'll like get a lot of attention. If you happen to be, you know, a kid with cancer, then you're going to get, you know, fully funded, if not beyond. If you're, you know, a 50 year old, like white man that lives in the middle of the country and just needs like medicine all the time that, you know, to, to live, like you're not going to get any money. Yeah, you're right. I mean, and it's, I think it's sad, right? That, that this is where we've, where we've come to, <laughs> yeah, that we have to try to find all of these mechanisms or ways just to pay for having a procedure or getting something medically done that that we need to. I mean, it just, I don't know, as we're having this conversation, it's just, it's really blowing my mind, kind of the magnitude of, of what we're talking about and and the impact that it's having in, in people's lives. You know, what do you think the future looks like? Uh, this is a big question, mm-hmm. but what do you think the future looks like for our healthcare system? Like, are we going to figure out a way to have a system that isn't leading so many of us into medical debt or into bankruptcy? Or is this just kind of going to be status quo? I mean, I think we have to, like, we have to, there's like, I just don't see, (laughs) um, I don't see how this is not sustainable. I mean, I I'm, I'm living and breathing this work every day and it's just absolutely not sustainable. We have to do something. Um, I don't think we have any other option. This is, this is, I mean, it's not even working for insurance companies or hospitals anymore. Um, so, uh, we, I don't think we have an option. Honestly, I don't think I could do this work if I thought any differently than that. (laughs) I don't think I could, you know, get up every day and fight this fight if I thought that we weren't going to somehow make moves. And I think we have seen some, some progress. I mean, do I think we're going to end up with, um, the perfect answer anytime soon? No. Um, but do I think that we will make medical debt is becoming enough of an issue and getting enough attention that, um, it will rise to the level of things like climate change and, you know, sort of things like that. I I think so. I actually do believe that medical debt is becoming enough of a burden that um, our politicians are going to have to do something differently. And, um, and I think that there, there will be change. And I don't know if that looks like additional subsidies. I don't know if it looks like um, taking Medicare um, and expanding it, you know, lowering the age proposals like that. I mean, honestly, there, there are things you could do. This, this issue of, of medical coverage has been discussed in the presidential, you know, debates like last time around. And I think coming up, um, I, I believe that the issue of medical debt itself will rise to the, you know, the sort of presidential debate stage. And that's how, you know, an issue is likely to have movement, at least in the next few years. Wow. <laughs> I think we all need to just take like a collective deep breath. I learned so much in this episode and I'm so angered by the system and I, I hope you are as well. But I'm really happy that Allison, places like RIP Medical Debt, they're out there fighting the good fight to really deal with this issue at hand. If you want to learn more, you can head to ripmedicaldebt.org. You can follow them on all the social channels at RIP Medical Debt. And I really encourage you to donate to help fight this cause. I know myself and my husband, we're going to be doing this. We're so impassioned after this episode. And Allison also really wants to just encourage you to talk about this issue so it can rise to the level of attention and finally get solved. So as the name of this show suggests, we need to start talking money, but in an open, shameless, fearless way. So I'm going to encourage you today to just try that, maybe tiptoe into that. If you enjoyed this episode, I feel like everybody should listen to this one, but please share it with friends or family members, someone who you know also needs to hear about this 
baffling medical debt issue here in the United States. As always, you can head to the show notes for all the links to our episode guests, as well as the sponsors who make this podcast possible. I'll see you back here in a few days for a brand new episode. (laughs) 